1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's where we'll be, continuing through the book of 1 Corinthians in our series called Counterculture, really looking at how the church is to be different from the world. And so uh, we'll be diving into that. That's where we're going to go and look in God's Word this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So I'm going to read the text. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Paul is writing, addressing the church, which we're going to talk about, about lawsuits against uh, brothers and sisters in the church, some of the problem that they were having. This is what God's Word says. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, I'd ask you to pray. Uh, We go straight through the Bible when we preach in Uh, And sometimes we come to passages that you say, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this today. If you ask God, you could be surprised. Pray, and I'll pray for us together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you, and, and quietly and humbly, I pray, sit before you and desire to hear you speak. And you've spoken fully through your word and through your son, Jesus, the manifestation of your word on this earth. We pray that it would go into our hearts and minds and flood us with what you want us to know about you and what you want us to um, know about how we ought to live. And so, Father, teach us. I pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, become more like him as we're drawn to him through your word. And, Father, that you would help us by your spirit as we flee from sin and sinful tendencies and attitudes in our life and uh, lean into the way of Jesus and uh, belonging to a church body that loves one another well. And so, Father, I pray that you just meet us here, be with us, and we thank you for Jesus who gives us life, and we pray these things in his name and all God's people said. So sometimes we come to the Bible, and I feel like a text like this, especially when we come to uh, the Bible in different ways, and we ask questions like this as people of God. We say, can I or should I, or am I allowed to? And in this case, Paul is kind of like answering a question for us. So we think like, uh, can I, or should I sue somebody or go to court with somebody? And Paul is addressing this issue in this text, but he's doing so much more than that. And I start there because we're asking too simple of a question there. When you come to God's word and say, can I or should I or am I allowed to, you look at the Bible as a book of like do's and don'ts. 
And that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a book of who God is and how we can know him through his son, Jesus, how he wants us to live flowing out of that, living like his son, but it's about him. And so to ask an arrow question about anything, this included, is just too small of a question. And so what I'd like to do as we work through this is keep aiming us at the big point in practicality of what Paul is addressing here in the church. We have to know that as he's shaping us and the church in Corinth theologically with that perspective, and that will have practical implications. It's practical theology, right? You cannot live practically as a Christ follower until you have a right understanding of God. So you need theology first, and what is Paul saying here? It's not just about lawsuits. He's saying something bigger than that. And then from that, how then ought we live? And that's going to shape us through, as we've been looking at this entire letter, Besides that, I I say this all the time. I I tell people to be on the screen. Do not ask in the Christian life, what is the wrong thing? Sometimes we do that. What's the wrong thing? We want to know what we shouldn't do. Ask instead, what's the most righteous thing in any given situation? I tell that to people all the time. People are always, and I think youth do this too. They want to toe the line, right? We're searching out the boundaries of what is permissible in the life of, of following Christ. It's like, well, what can I get away with? What's wrong here? What's right there? Like, don't ask what's wrong. Ask what is the most righteous thing you could do? And this is just a life principle for following Jesus in any situation. A quarrel between a brother for sure, uh, uh, a different career move. What is the most righteous thing I can do? Now, you have to remember what Paul is driving at here in, in this text, and I'll give you the background in a second. The big idea is the church, as we, in our series, is supposed to be countercultural, which means we are not like the world. So remember that. That's the theme of his letter. You are not like the world, so don't act like it. And so everything he says kind of follows in line with that. The secondary point in this little text is that sin and fleshly attitude in the body needs to be dealt with, and it needs to be removed. And that's what uh, Russell preached on last week. When there's sin in the church, You need to expose it, and it needs to be dealt with. You can't ignore sin in the life of the church. We all have sin, but blatant, repentant sin that just grows like a cancer has to be dealt with. Thirdly, then, we are to live righteously before God and celebrate the beauty of the gospel. That's a huge thrust of this text we're about to unpack here. We gather to celebrate God's work in the gospel through Jesus Christ to redeem sinners. It is only then, after you get through those Three things that you can get to the practical implication. Okay, what does that look like in specific situations? And so the background of the text looks like this. Last week we were in chapter 5, and Pastor Russell preached on that, and, and lust and sexual immorality specifically was dealt with. But it continues into 6, if you notice this. Lust is still present in lawsuits. It's just a different kind of lust. It's greed. And it's revenge. It's some different attitudes that are present. It might not be sexual lust, but it's lust for position or retribution or financial gain. All that was causing these quarrels. And these sin patterns, Paul's writing, are still present in the lives of the members of the body. Why? Because they're not living righteously. They're living, Paul says, as their former selves. And that's key for understanding this text. He comes in and he calls them what they are, but he says, you're living like you used to, You're now redeemed in Christ. Your attitude, your heart, your way of life has to change. Now, so back in the day, cultural implications here so we can understand why is Paul even addressing this issue. In Greco-Roman society, litigation was a part of everyday life. 
It said, somebody said this, wrote it down, like that every Athenian was his own lawyer. They like got pleasure out of taking others to court all the time. And so I don't really have a modern day example of that, although people sue each other left and right today. But whether it's gossiping or slandering or positioning yourself a bunch, uh, against a neighbor or friend or employer or employee, whatever it is, they were doing this all the time. And it was like a game, a recreation thing. They would sue each other for trivial matters, for grand matters. That's just what they did. And what you have to remember is that for centuries, God's people, the Jewish culture in Israel, governed themselves. And when Roman government came along, the Roman government still allowed the Jews to govern themselves. If you think all the way to Jesus, what we know about his crucifixion, arrest and crucifixion, they allowed the Pharisees to govern that situation, even put people to death. And so the Roman government said, well, that's your people, that's a religious thing, you kind of govern yourselves. And so they were allowed to do that, they dealt with their own matters, and when people came to Christ in the time of this letter being written, the church that kind of transferred to Christians, they can still govern themselves, but you see some were starting to go outside of that and starting to go outside and look for other people in the world, what Paul calls unrighteous, to start to govern matters that belong to the church. And so that's what he is addressing this. They're starting to take this into the world. They're not being countercultural anymore. They're diving into the world and kind of blending those two things, the church and the world. And so how I want to guide us through this morning, and it drives, again, these bigger ideas rather than this simple question, Paul mentions specifically three areas of misunderstanding these believers had. And this is what I want you to leave with. One, the true rank that they had in relation to the world. They needed to understand their place and position in the world. Paul's going to address that. The second is the true attitude they should have in relation to one another. Paul is speaking about lawsuits, but he's saying, here's the attitude present in that, that you need to have a right understanding. And then third, the true character that they should have in relation to God's standards of righteousness. We need a right understanding of those three things. And if that's what you took away today, those would be the three things that I'd want you to take in lawsuits and anything else. Those are the big three ideas going to number one here, the true rank of believers. Let's look at verses one through six. Paul says in verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, I'm going to stop there. Paul doesn't say if, we've covered this before, there's going to be conflict in the body of Christ, right? He says, when you have a grievance, I'm guessing that within this room, there are so many grievances between the body in this room represented. You could, don't look across the row. Well, like you can look down, yeah, but it's just present. And I'm guessing, and I don't want to say that's a good thing. I've had conflict with some of you That's actually a really good thing if we're to grow together in love. We have to have some friction from time to time. It's not a bad thing. How we grow through that could be a different story if you go this way or that way. But hopefully we do it in love. And Paul's saying, when you have that, it's going to happen. Sinners join together, gather together in the body. You're going to have friction and conflict. Here's what you need to do. And he starts to unpack all these kind of rhetorical questions of them not getting it right. And Paul's not naive, but he instructs the heir in how they're handling it. He says, when you have this, does one dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, Paul is saying unrighteous here just as a terminology for the world. It's not about moral standing or moral moral character or ability, but spiritual. There could be somebody that has okay by the world standards, morals, still void of the truth of the gospel. But he's saying they're unrighteous. 
They don't have God's standards for living. They don't have God's way of living. And you're going to go and take your matter to that court. Paul's concern was that the believers, not that they would get an unfair trial, don't misunderstand, but that they had so, this is a big, big idea in like what I think about in our culture as a problem. They had so little respect for the authority of the church to settle its own disputes and its testimony in doing so. So they brought it outside of that. That is a problem in our culture. People that have so little respect for the authority of the church. What God has given to govern. Is it perfect? No. But he's established authority in the church. And they had so little respect for that that they said, we're going to go and take our matters elsewhere. And the testimony of the gospel in the church gets marred when that happens. When we put ourselves under the authority of the world, we confess that we don't have right actions and attitudes and, and really, what Paul is concerned about is they're doing this because they care more about revenge and gain than they are about caring about unity in the body. It kind of exposes the yucky things in us when we take matters like that or we go outside of the gospel community, and it kind of exposes that. And Paul says this, and he asks this question, or do you, in verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, there's going to be a couple of things that are like mysterious that he adds, and we don't want to get distracted terribly, but we have to address them. What is Paul talking about here? One day when Christ comes back, we will rule and reign with him, those who belong to him. Now, Revelation, I'm going to throw up a couple of verses here in Revelation chapter 2, 26. The one who conquers and one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And one more in chapter 3. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus is saying here in the churches to Revelation, the seven churches, he's saying, one day the saints will rule with me. And so Paul is in knowledge of that, saying, one day the saints will rule the world. I don't have all the specifics of that. What does that entirely look like in terms of a millennial kingdom? But he says it, and we need to unpack what he's saying in this point, though. If we are to rule over the world, why would we put ourselves under someone's else, someone else's rule while we're here? Like, why would you do that? Why would you submit to the world's authority if one day you're going to rule over it? And even now in Christ, that is what we are promised We've been given the Spirit's resources for settling disputes. That's what Paul is driving at here. And not only that, the gospel community has been drawn together for to be a light to the rest of the watching world. So when the church has harmony and unity in it, people see that and say, that's different. That's unique. But when it has division and fraction, they say, well, that's just like it is out here. And it's confusing. So we must remember our rank. And then Paul mentions this as if we're not like more curious do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, angels are mentioned just a few times in, in the New Testament, and every time they're mentioned, they bring curiosity to us. And there's a lot of mystery about them. We have some ideas about God's concern for the angels and, and how they were created and somehow they fall. And, but there's a lot of like question mark about what Paul is talking about there. So not entirely sure we can't be what he's meaning here, whether fallen angels or holy ones, but the scriptures do tell us in passages like 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6 that the Lord will judge fallen angels. And this Greek word that Paul uses could have just meant to rule or govern. So will we one day the saints rule over and govern angels? Possibly. 
That's within the realm of possibility. What we know is that we will have some authority with Christ over the angels. Paul's point here, though, without getting hung up, and we need a lot more time to unpack that, getting confused over that, is that if we are to judge one day and rule over the world and over angels in the age to come, again, we are surely able now in this age under the guidance of Scripture and the power of the Spirit to settle matters within the church body. Do you see what he's doing? He's kind of pushing them out. He says, you're going to judge the world one day. You're going to rule over angels one day. And here's what you want to do with your little squabbles. You want to take them outside of that community. He's saying, you need to check your heart and attitude in that and remember your place as believers. Paul continues in this sort of sarcastic way. I know Russell mentioned he uses sarcasm and he does it in this period in this letter and asks these kind of ridiculous questions to show them their foolishness, and he acknowledges that they will have disputes like this. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between the brothers? Stops there. He says, like, this is, he's not impressed. Paul is not impressed with the church here. And he's taking a little jab at them for their intellect and wisdom, right? We talked about that. People of Corinth, they, they thought they were super wise, super intelligent. And he takes a little stab. He says, surely there's no one wise enough in your body because you tote this wisdom that could deal with little trivial cases that you're, you're going to take it outside of the body. And he reminds them and remembers them with this. And I, and I want to say this because I think it's important. What Paul is really saying here is this, the poorest equipped believer, the one who has the, in your opinion, the least amount of gifts, the poorest equipped believer who seeks the counsel of God's word and spirit is more competent to settle disagreements between fellow believers than it is the most highly trained and experienced unbelieving judge who is devoid devoid of the divine truth. Does that make sense? He's saying, even the one who has the spirit of God, who you would say, not very capable, not a lot of gifting, has more discernment and ability to judge matters between believers than the highest skilled, highest trained lawyer or judge in the world because they don't have and aren't practicing the truth of God's word. He's saying you need to understand that if you belong to the body of Christ, you have the spirit and God's word, you can settle all things within the church. Don't go to the world without the Bible. And friends, you might sit there and say, well, what does it have to do to me? How often do you go and ask for someone else's advice in your life that isn't a believer, that doesn't know Christ? When you're trying to make a decision, whether a work decision or a family decision, and you're bouncing ideas off people that do not have the word of God as their foundation and don't have the spirit to give you that advice back, why would you do that? So it has application there. Why would you go and ask somebody who doesn't trust in Christ, hey, what should I do with this? Think about parenting, and the bookshelves are full of them, parenting books and and then financial books, all these things that don't have God and his word at the foundation, you'll go to look for wisdom. Paul is saying, why would you do that? They're completely devoid of truth, completely devoid of God's counsel. Don't go looking for that. And he's ashamed of the behavior in the church. Now, I don't know about you, but When I hear, and I've had past experiences, thankfully, for the most part, not here, but when I hear of other churches acting like this with infighting and quarrels, 
The same, the same way I feel when I see some in the church engage in gossip and slander. The same way I feel when some people post social media things. It's like, what are you doing? All that stuff. Paul's feeling this level of like, why in the world are you doing that? Do you know that you're tarnishing the reputation of Christ? He's not concerned most with the church and the reputation. He's concerned most with the reputation of Jesus. He's saying, why do you act like this in the world? And friends, this is a check for all of us. What we post on social media, what we say in the world, that's representing Christ first and foremost. And then it represents our church body and then it represents us as an individual believer. But Paul is saying, like, there is like so much shame in that that you guys don't understand what the church is called to to be countercultural, and that you have this rank and position in the world now and in the age to come. And so he reminds them to know their rank and standing in the world as a believer of Jesus. This is not your home. You belong to the church, the people of God, the saints. And he says, deal with your attitudes in light of that. And Paul knows the dangers of fleshly attitudes, so he drives that in the next two verses, the second point, the attitude of a believer in verses 7 or 8. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. When you take... Paul is saying when you take a fellow believer or brother to court, what they were doing is that they lose spiritually before their case was even heard. He said they're missing it already. Not always in court, but any dispute that is aired publicly. Now we can relate a little better, right? Maybe you don't have to go to court, but any dispute that you take publicly. So let's just say this for application's sake. Let's say that you have a squabble or a quarrel with somebody in the church body, and you go and tell your unbelieving friend that. You see what you've done there? Like, oh, that person ticks me off so bad, and this is what they did. You've tarnished the testimony of the church. And he said, you've already lost spiritually. You've gossiped. You've already slandered a brother or sister. And now you've confused uh, an unbeliever, what the church is supposed to look like, a church of redeemed sinners that God has called saints and will position in authority. And, and you've confused them. Like, well, like, that's not very righteous. Why would you do that? You see, that makes a little more sense to us. And Paul says, you lose spiritually right when you do that. It puts our attitudes in check. And, and really, when it comes to this, the lawsuits, what Paul is driving at is, why do you feel like you need to go and take that brother or sister to court? He's driving at the attitude, the sin pattern, right? It's because you want revenge. That's a word we can relate to. It's because you want retribution. That's a word we can relate to. It's because you want justice. That's a word we like, but we can kind of twist for our own purpose. It's because you want satisfaction, why? Wait for it. Because we feel owed. I mean, that's our life in America, right? We are the most entitled bunch of people. And the kids that are growing up are more, by generation, more entitled because somebody owes us something. And Paul is driving at that attitude that if you don't understand that you are not owed anything in the church, you're going to miss the gospel completely. And he says, the fact that you do this just shows that you think you're owed something and that you're going to go get it and feel that satisfaction and retribution. So he asks these rhetorical questions. He says, isn't the right attitude rather to just be wronged and trust God instead, to be defrauded 
and trust God instead? In other words, isn't it better to lose financially than to lose spiritually? And Paul says the stakes are high. The testimony of the world is at stake. He says, but this is what you do. You wrong and defraud, and it makes yourself feel better. Now, this text certainly doesn't ask this question, but I think for me, as I studied it, it raises it. You go through a text like this, and you say, well, what about this? What about Christians filing lawsuits to those that are not in the church body? Paul doesn't really cover that. And I believe the answer to that question is drawn out here a little bit, and I would say it this way. Sometimes that may be necessary in the world we live in, but I would err on the side of caution in that. Paul's driving at the same thing. Is your motive for gain? Is it for financial freedom or satisfaction or for revenge? Paul's rhetorical questions are in play there. I've shared this before, but last October, we were in the surgery with Josiah, and they broke his femur, femur, and they didn't know it. They broke his leg. And everybody, still to this day, when we were in this last hospitalization, and he had a little sign above his bed that says, do not straighten his legs. And all the nurses would come and be like, what's that all about? And they'd be like, oh, well. They're like, oh, really? Because they knew, and everybody we've talked to said, well, you could have sued the hospital. We could have sued the hospital. And there is a little bit of regret from that because we could have just at least asked for college to be paid for for all of our kids. But we didn't. <laughs> but during the time, we had people call us, and I think I had shared this, we had people from the hospital call us, kind of like fact find how angry our mom and dad. We had a PR person call and say, what would you like to see happen? They were like ready for themselves to get sued. Why? Because that's what the world does. Carrie and I never had an intention to do that because we didn't need financial gain. We didn't want anything. It was an accident that happened. It was unfortunate, but that's just not the way. That doesn't make me more holy in that way. It's just, what was that going to gain for the body of Christ? What was that going to gain for the headline, Pastor Sue's Children's Hospital? I think I would have added to that that has helped his child for nine years. That would, there would have been nothing, but that's not the way it works in the world. And so I think it draws that question, what is the attitude of your heart when you are wronged and defrauded in the world and you want to take that person to court? Paul's saying, check your attitude. If it's not righteous, it is not worth it. You see, the Old Testament law, some of us live there, right? Like, which if you go back, like a, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus comes along and he kind of turns that new covenant on his head. And that's why we read from Matthew. He says, that's what the law said and that's how God's people dealt. But now that Christ has come, he says, turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. If he steals this, give him your hat. Give him your cloak. It's a different way of living that honors Christ. That says, you know what? I could be wronged and trust God more. I could, I could lose financially and spiritually I could gain. Because it's not about this world. And again, it's the bigger picture, our rank and then our attitude. It's the Lord who gives and takes away. We would be far better to trust God in this way. So let me ask it this way. Let's say you're in a situation that you could take someone to court outside of the church, and you have every legal right to do so. And again, sometimes I'm not saying there aren't reasons why that may need to happen from time to time. I'm just saying, what about this? Do you think God will punish you for trying to err on the side of righteous things? If you say, God, I don't know like, maybe I need to have this lawsuit in the world, and I've been wronged, and I don't know if this needs to be dealt with through the court systems, but, like, I don't want to err on that side, and what if I, like, choose a righteous thing and just say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Remember, it's not about doing the wrong thing. It's about doing the most right thing. Do you think God will actually punish you if you try to do a right thing? 
I don't think he will. Which leads me to the final point and what it drives and what Paul is saying is the true character of the believer. This is where the gospel, just as we're going to land, it really shines here. Paul takes this turn in the letter and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he lists all of these sins. He lists them all there. Paul returns to this list of sins. It's right up there. You can read it about all that he unpacked at the end of chapter 5. But what you need to see here in this list of sins is that his purpose is not to give a list of sins that will indicate one has lost his salvation, but rather to catalog a sinful type of those who are unsaved. People that continually repent or unrepent fleshly ways are not fleshly ways are not believers in the spirit. And he's saying these are people that in their life this is their attitude. This is a, a represent, representing someone that is not truly repentant, not truly trusting Christ, and therefore unrighteous and not saved. And he's asking, why would you act like that if you have been saved, been redeemed as a saint now? You're living like your former selves. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. So Paul says, this is what you used to be. Why would you act like that again? There's a definite change that happens. A believer being a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, new heart, new flesh, or fresh spirit. The flesh isn't fully removed. We know we fight sin and struggle, but the heart begins to transform. Listen to this, friends. The church, the body of Christ, should be filled with former fornicators, adulterers, thieves, swindlers, shysters, liars, murderers, you name it. Paul lists them. The church today should be filled with those kind of people who used to be that way. We like to put on our nice facade and say, well, that's not me. One of us could identify with one of those things on the list at some point in our past. And Paul says, this is what the church should be filled with. Here's the news flash he offers. Every Christian in the church is an ex-sinner. That's what he's saying. And so if you sit there today and say, well, that's not me, I wonder if you're part of the church. He says, every person that's ever belonged to the church, the family of God, that's their status before they came and were redeemed. Christ came to save for that purpose, Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That was Jesus' mission. He came to take everyone on that list and redeem them. And Paul is driving that home in this letter to Corinth, to the church. He's saying, I came and redeemed that part about you, that sinful state that you were in. And so don't act like that again. And here is the greatest news in Christianity. No person has sinned too deeply or too long to be saved. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and that's the beauty of Jesus. And so Paul wants to end this little part about lawsuits with the gospel, reminding them, using the strongest reminder in verse 11, stating three descriptors of the new believer in their life in Christ. And here's, here's what I would say before we look at these three things as we close. Here's God's offer to you if you've never turned to Christ in faith and you sit here today weary and lonely and broken and you want a new life. Here's the offer of what Jesus gives and does, what God has given through Christ in redeeming his people. He says that we are washed and sanctified and justified. Paul writes these three words because he says wash. This speaks of the new life. Mentioned in John 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, which I already referenced about new creation. This happens at the baptism of the Holy Spirit when someone turns 
to faith in Christ and they're given the spirit, which is also symbolically represented in water baptism. He says, I'm going to make you clean, which is why he uses the word sanctified. This speaks of the new behavior. This is the promise of being conformed into the image of Christ. I'm going to make you like my son. First, I'm going to take you in and wash you of all that sin. And then I'm going to make you, turn you, churn you, even some of us, into the image of my son. Some of that will be through hardship and struggle, but it's a journey that God promises. Philippians 1.6, right? He was faithful will complete the good work. Who started the good work will be faithful to complete it. And then he says, and then you will be justified. This speaks of the new standing before God, that everyone on that list of sinners, once in their former sin, he says, now God will look at you as he does Christ. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because he kept the whole law. Paul reminds them of this. Some of you were like that, but God washed you, sanctified you, and now justified you so that you could have a new life, a new behavior, and a new standing before God. In referencing Abraham's faith, Paul writes this, and I just want to read this in Romans 4, in what he was talking about, about that justification. He says, That is why his, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This isn't going to be on the screen, but I'm just going to read through this because it's something that I read and rehearsed. I've memorized it, like I said it these last two weeks with Josiah. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, that's your standing. You've been washed, sanctified, justified, you can suffer on this earth and endure because it's going to produce character and character is going to produce hope. And you'll be able to look forward to your home in heaven. You see, the believers in Corinth, like the believers here amongst us today, have experienced transformation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's his last verse in verse 11. Because of Christ's work at the cross, these things be true to all who call upon him in faith. And a transformed life should produce transformed living. And so we're not saved to act like the world, to act like our former selves. We are saved from that. And so here's what I'd say as I close. If you know Christ, celebrate him in the gospel and live according to, according to what God has said here, that you are washed, sanctified, justified. If you do not know Christ today, you can respond to him in faith for his work on the cross for your sins. You can be saved. You can be all of those things and look forward to the life that God has for us. Let's pray. I want to leave you uh, with this word from 1 John 3 and then we'll sing uh, a doxology together. But this is what God's word says. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen.